0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, O'Reilly's Max Lookham sits down with Richard Cook and David Woods. Richard is a physician, researcher, and educator who is currently a research scientist in the Department of Integrated Systems Engineering at Ohio State University and Emeritus Professor of Healthcare System Safety at Sweden's KTH. David is also a professor at Ohio State University and is leading the initiative on complexity in natural, social, and engineered systems, and he's the co-director of Ohio State University's Cognitive Systems Engineering Laboratory. They chat about snafu catchers, anomaly response, and the importance of not only understanding how things fail, but how things work normally. Enjoy the episode.
1: Richard, you and David are both involved with something called Snafu Catchers at Ohio State. What is that group's goal? We're trying
2: to understand how internet-facing businesses manage to handle all the various problems, difficulties, and and opportunities that come along. And our goal is to understand how to support people in that kind of work. It's a fast-changing world, mostly that uh, appears on the surface to be smooth and and, uh, uh, smoothly functioning. But in fact, uh, as people who work in the industry know, is always uh, struggling with different kinds of breakdowns and things that don't work correctly and uh, obstacles that have to be addressed. And so snafu catchers refers to the idea that people are constantly working to collect and and respond to all the different kinds of things that follow up the system and that that's the normal situation, not the abnormal one.
3: So you have to remember what snafu stands for, right, and where it comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a coinage from the grunts in World War II on our side, on the winning side, Mm -hmm. right? Situation normal. The normal situation is all fucked up, Mm -hmm. right? So that the pristine, smooth work as designed, follow the plan, work, you know, put in automation, everything is great, isn't really the way things work in the real world. It appears that way from a distance, but on the ground, there's gaps, uncertainties, conflicts, and trade-offs, and those are normal. In fact, they're, they're essential. They're part of this universe and the way things work. And so what that means is there is often a, a breakdown, a limit in terms of how much adaptive capability is built into the system, and we have to add to that because surprise will happen, exceptions will happen, anomalies will happen. And so where does that extra capacity to adapt to surprise come from? And that's what we're trying to understand and focus on not the snafu. That's just normal. Mm -hmm. We're focusing on the catching, right? What are the processes, abilities, capabilities of the teams, groups, and organizational practices that help you catch snafu, right? And that's about the anticipation and preparation so that you can respond quickly and directly when the surprise occurs.
1: What is anomaly response? I've heard that term before. In, In what areas or industries is it most prevalent?
3: Okay, so this first came from when I got started 35 years ago looking at decision-making in emergencies. So the event presents itself as a variety of things are starting to look wrong. Some anomaly, something is off in the system. It's not working as it usually does. And that challenges, uh, produces a variety of cognitive challenges to recognize what's anomalous. That there isn't, even if there is an anomaly, or these are just normal noise. Things aren't, aren't perfect uh, usually in terms of the sensors and indicators and things. It's easy to rational. Everything's normal. We can we can go straight ahead, uh, uh, as opposed to divert or shut down or back off on production because something's wrong in the system. Uh, so it started with these uh, decision making in emergencies and how it evolved and how the anomaly cascaded and became more difficult and how people kept pace with the different cascade of problems that arose. Uh, we went on and studied it, for example, in space shuttle mission control because that was a success story. They were really good at anomaly response, uh, how they brought in extra sources of expertise, how they questioned the, uh, they questioned each other so that they didn't get mm-hmm. trapped in one way of thinking about it when in fact something else was really going on. So it might look like one kind of problem, but really be a different one. Um, and so we were looking at them as a success story and also Interestingly, back to the snafu catchers, they were good snafu catchers, but the other side of it is they were existed in a changing world. They were under production and efficiency pressure. Uh, other technologies and relationships were changing for NASA, and so the ability to continue to be good at anomaly response was being called into question. And even though they were good, it turns out they had failures too, hmm. right? So they got challenged and they trap they got trapped under some conditions. Uh, often it was in rationalizing or discounting evidence of an anomaly. Right. Oh, that's just off. Oh, there's that's always off a little bit. Oh, yeah, we know what that's due to. Uh, when, in fact, this these were the early indications of bigger trouble ahead.
1: Chris, your question for you, how do we learn from incidents and, and what is DevOps doing in that regard? There's, there's an old
2: surgical saying that good results come from experience and experience comes from bad results. <laughs> and that's probably true in this industry as well. We learn from experience by having difficulties and solving those sorts of problems. We live in an environment in which people are doing this as apprenticeships very early on in their life, and uh, the apprenticeship gives them opportunities to experience different kinds of failure, and having those experiences tells them something about the kinds of activities that they should perform once they sense a failure is occurring, and also some of the different kinds of things that they can do to respond to different kinds of failures. Most of what happens in this is a combination of understanding how the system is working and understanding what's going on that suggests that it's not working in the right sort of way. So you need two kinds of knowledge to be able to do this, not just knowledge of how things fail, but also knowledge of how things normally work.
1: David, when did you first hear about DevOps and what was your initial response to it? Uh,
3: I got invited to come (laughs) to this meeting and I looked at him and said, wait a minute, you've already had some of my colleagues and and students come and talk uh, i'm not sure you need why i don't know what i would say here uh you've got some of this stuff particularly on the anomaly response stuff you're using it uh that's great but it's kind of tough to squeeze in the schedule and okay mm-hmm. and then uh finally john allspaw talked me into coming to new york and uh, he was very persistent and I came and I walked in the door and I looked around and I went, wow, this is the future happening. This isn't the past. This isn't place we transfer things we learned from NASA mission control. This is a place that's showing us what the future is really going to look like. Uh, they're working at scale. Uh, they're working at a with a, what other people would call an infrastructure, but it isn't an infrastructure anymore. It is your service. Your, your digital uh, capabilities are your service, are your business. They migrate from non-risk critical into risk critical functions. So whether that's business critical or safety critical. Um, and I was seeing uh, here uh, people who were succeeding, I mean, locally adapting to succeed at managing this increasingly complex beast in a way that other industries were saying, I'm going to automate more, I'm going to put more autonomous systems in. It's going to make everything simpler and more pristine, and there'll be less surprises. And I'm mm-hmm. looking at the, what's going on here, and I'm going, no, there's new and different kinds of surprises, and they're even harder to deal with. Right. This is the most exciting place. <laughs> and I walked and, and we, I talked to everybody, and they said, We need to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should build a consortium which later be called, became called snafu catchers. Let's build some teamwork here and combine what we know from other industries, other settings, what we've generalized, and let's look at where you're going and how you're making it work. Again, let's study snafu catching and see how we can show what's valuable. What's, what are the key investments to be good at this? Show people that, in fact, you have to have this capability to
1: be resilient in a complex world. Oh, Richard, same question for you. What was your initial exposure to DevOps and what was your response to it?
2: Sounds like the same as David's. John Alsbach called me up. He'd read a paper I wrote and said, this sounds like what we experience in DevOps. And he mm-hmm. invited me to write a book chapter in the book that he was writing on DevOps. And I was glad to do it. I also wanted to know more about what was going on and what their world was like. I think my um, observation would be that um, there are communities of people in my world, they're anesthesiologists, surgeons, nurses, uh, in this world, it's operations people and DevOps people and, and uh, people in development. And these communities actually have a lot in common. They're working in worlds where there's much less certainty about how things are going to turn out than most people understand. The work that they're doing is very highly technical and not much that outsiders can contribute to. The results that they have are very public. And when they uh, turn out things turn out badly, it's very clear that they've turned out badly. Uh, and there's a kind of recognition in the community of people that they are engaged in something both important and quite difficult that takes a long time to become really good at. And so there's a natural connection between the other communities that I participated in and and, and studied and the community of people who work here. And that resonance uh, is, is always um it's a bit of a visiting fireman kind of resonance. It's that we, <laughs> we have similar experiences, um, even though they're in quite different technical areas. We labor under the same kinds of uh, constraints, especially uncertainty and, and uh, pressure, both from production and, and for performance. And, and we, um, we, we recognize that our job is to make things work when things are, in fact, often broken.
1: So uh, this is a question for both of you. Richard, I'll, I'll start with you. How do you know when an incident has started? What are the signals?
2: One of the questions that I ask people and it's one of the ways we try to explore new areas is to say, what is an incident for you and how does that happen? Just today at lunch, we were having a discussion about this. I asked the question, I asked the question a little differently, which is, how long before you declare an incident did the incident begin? and Do you study that and understand that? And people said, yes, sometimes the incident happened when I hit the deploy button and uh, the system went down a few seconds later we lost this particular functionality. But other people said, you know, we have incidents that have been cooking along for three months or in some cases three years. We've been seeing system performance changes and characteristic vulnerabilities that display themselves only over a long period of time, and it takes us a very long time to put that together. What we call an incident is largely a kind of matter of, of, of of convenience. And in many cases, it has a lot to do with the overhead associated with incidents. For instance, today, people were telling me that once they declare an incident, they have a whole bunch of paperwork they have to fill out. There's a whole bunch of forms that get generated. In fact, they have to, in some settings, they have to hire somebody just to handle all of the reporting requirements that are associated with an incident. And so the obvious question is, gee, you must try and limit the number of incidents you have. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you would be swamped with all this stuff. And the answer is yes, there's lots of stuff going on sort of below that threshold. Our interest is often in the stuff that's below the threshold, things that are proto-incidents, sort of ur-incidents, neo-incidents, things that haven't yet tripped into the threshold, because people are usually aware that this stuff is going on. And in many practitioners, it's just a sense that something isn't quite right, that the system is not behaving the way it should. And that sense is very often what I would think of as the beginning of an incident. The beginning of an incident is not when I I push the button. Says now we've got uh, we filed a JIRA report. That's that's usually in fact towards the end of the incident. What really matters is that initial understanding of how the system should be working and recognition that something has changed that that can herald some sort of different performance uh, regime.
3: So in what he was running through, notice what's interesting is you have to have a pretty good model of how it's supposed to work,
1: Mm
3: -hmm. right? And then you start getting suspicious, right? Things don't quite seem right. Mm -hmm. And this is the early signals, sometimes called weak signals. And these are easy to discount away. But one of the things you see, and this happened in uh, mission control, for example, in its heyday, was all discrepancies were anomalies until proven otherwise. That was the cultural ethos of mission control. And when you lose that, you see people discounting. Oh, that discrepancy isn't going to really matter. Uh, I'm under. I've got to get this other stuff done. Or if I follow it up, some other things will start happening. Uh, so what we see in, in successful anomaly response is this early ability to notice something starting to go wrong, and it is not definitive. Right? If it was definitive, then it would cross some threshold, it would activate some response. It would. Uh, uh, pull other resources in to deal with it because of, you don't want it to get out of control. But the, uh, preparation for, uh, and success at handling these things is to get started early. The failure mode is you're slow and stale. So if you let it cook too long mm-hmm. before you start to react, right, you can be slow and stale and the cascade can get away from you. You lose control. And when we study this, uh, when they're effective, uh, when teams or organizations are effective, or effective at this, they are helping people, right? notice things are slightly out, and then pursue it. Dig a little deeper, follow up, test it, uh, bring some other people to bear with some different or complementary expertise, uh, not give up real quick that that discrepancy is just noise and can be ignored. Now, most of the time, those discrepancies might probably be noise, mm-hmm. right? And isn't worth the effort. But sometimes those are the beginnings of something that's going to threaten to cascade out of control.
2: Another part of this, though, is that in order for this to work, you have to build systems that you can steer. It's no good if the system is so completely tightly wired and and such a black box that you can't do anything about it. Then you're kind of stuck on the Titanic watching it heading for the iceberg but unable to do anything. So what we are interested in is systems that can be steered once you have this kind of information. Early on in training, most doctors are pretty impressed with people who do well in emergencies. There's a big attraction to the, the gore and the, and the excitement of the emergency room and people taking dramatic actions. Later on in your career, you're interested in the practitioners who don't seem to have emergencies. <laughs> and in fact, you want to emulate those kinds of people. And, yeah. and, and in our world, that's, that's very much like what happens here. The systems are being constantly steered by people who are recognizing things are getting out of bounds, out of their margins, threatening in various ways, and they're steering them towards successful pathways. And so part of the productive uh, a- aspect of this research is to figure out ways to build steerable systems.
3: So another aspect is called the law of fluency. And the issue is the kind of well-adapted activity that he just described mm-hmm. hides right the difficulties the disturbances that were managed, right, the trade-offs they had to make, the decisions they had to make, and so the skill, right? The very practice of that skill tends to hide the need for that skill, or even the character of that skill. That's called the law of fluency, right? Well-adapted activity hides, right? The difficulties managed and the dilemmas balanced, um, and so we try to move and, un- and unveil what's otherwise uh, hidden by fluent activity, well-adapted activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where we see the real skill. And that's where we see the kinds of preparatory, the kinds of anticipatory. And we also see the organizational factors that hinder or uh, uh, assist having those kinds of skills. Do you block them? Do you hide them? Do you uh, push people who have those skills as not very valuable or troublemakers or something? Instead of recognizing people who can do that are a particularly unique resource. And do you reinforce them? Do you help them? Uh, so it has both an organizational component as well as an a, a individual or small team component. Uh,
1: there, I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on there. There's, <laughs> there's a lot going on that's super interesting. Well,
3: and that, that we understand a fair amount about this. Yeah, and snafu catches, right? We have this. We have this combination of we understand a fair amount about this that isn't being used, mm-hmm. or, or we see it re- repeated, rediscovered in a in a new setting, right? In DevOps. Mm-hmm. On the other hand. There's something new in DevOps or in the world, the scale it operates in, the kinds of uh, uh, settings in which this is going on and starting to expand to. And other areas are not up on how snafu catching really works here. And some of that's the old findings that need to be applied. And the question is, how do they get applied in this new world uh, that that touches so many old worlds? Mm -hmm. Uh, But also that there are new challenges coming up in order to demonstrate the skills we've seen before and maybe new skills that we'll discover as we look more carefully at this.
1: David, I want to come back to something you would mentioned before. You you touched on automation. Automation is a big part of the operations world. It sort of is held out there as this thing that you always need. What is your take on it? Is it an essential, or is it actually something that could be problematic?
3: Well, so that's a long, long uh, discussion. (laughs) But one of the ways uh, I can frame it quickly is, if you look at what's transforming systems today, connectivity, sensing, and autonomy, right? And then I go, oh, there's really a fourth one, people, Mm -hmm. right? The snafu catching is the people. What's really driving the change is the connectivity and the sensing. Those things are saying, and and what sensing means, I'm getting data, information that's valuable to some role, to some, some person at some level of the organization who has something at stake, some goals to achieve. Connectivity is putting people together, right? So these roles need to coordinate or synchronize under certain conditions. The automation or autonomy only comes in to operate at scale. If you have connectivity and you have sensing and that provides value to people, right? people pursuing advantage, then you need more automation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it less a human system. It's still a system that's pursuing human purposes. People are investing in it to seek advantage. And Snafu Catcher says, as you build that new system, as you transform it to that new scale, what Snafu applies, that's the normal state. It won't be as pristine as you think. And if it is, it won't last very long. Because others will adapt to take advantage of what you've created as a capability. So that means the other human role is the snafu catching. So what happens with automation is they think they're making, if you worked, the automation represents the best plan, the best analysis. So we'll now lock that in Mm -hmm. because the machines will do it. Instead, you go, no, the machines are just another role. And another part of an increasingly complex system. And if you look at some of the claims about autonomy, what you find is it's not about a thing, right? It's actually a complex network of multiple computational components, multiple machine or automated roles and multiple human roles. It's a complex network. And what we see is the, is called the reification fallacy. For example, with uh, semi autonomous vehicles, right? Where we treat it as if it's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's this vehicle, right? When you actually can count up dozens of sensors and computational components, uh, and how do they interplay? And those are just the onboard ones. If you look at a broader time sure. scale, there's right. another set of, of roles and activities and automation and computational and human roles trying right. to keep that system running, improve it, maintain it, change it over the life cycle. And so what do we see again? We see a complex and an adaptive network, multiple levels, multiple roles right? Serving human purposes. We come back to the same story of you need to be able to adapt. The world keeps changing on you. It changes because you're successful, not just because there's failures and problems and limited resources out there. Uh, success uh, undermines what past success because others adapt around it. They ask you to do it more do, more, do it faster, do it in more complex ways. Pressure grows, stakes grow because you can do more, right? Because it works at a bigger scale. And so you see this engine of growing complexity and so one of the critical ingredients to make that work is build in snafu catching. What is it? What are the skills you need? What re- uh, resources are critical to have those skills? And how do we show people that that is a fundamental value, not an occasional thing like a fireman running into a burning building to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, uh, as an exceptional or rare case? that this is part of the normal ongoing work in these small incidents as Richard just described.
1: So it needs to be woven into the fabric of it instead of bolted Absolutely. on some Absolutely. Area. Um Last question for both of you, and Richard, we'll start with you. What people or projects are you watching these days?
2: I'm, I'm particularly interested in the places that are growing very rapidly and that are struggling to um, find uh, a successful place uh, in this very fast-changing and fast-paced uh, environment. It's clear that there are a lot of good ideas. Many of the good ideas are um, uh, difficult to put into place, and therefore don't get very far. But some of them do, and they get started. They make a few inroads, but they're very hard to sustain. Um, these are small to medium-sized organizations pursuing products in a particular area that has a particular need. and And I find these very interesting because I think there's a lot of creativity there. The other end of the world are the very large companies that are trying to become like small companies in that way. They're trying to develop that capacity to look and uh, exploit new things in a very fast, fluid, facile sort of way. And I I see these two activities joining together into a kind of new framework, a new fabric for development. I, I think this is going to be an exciting time, and I'm not sure it's a time that's exciting because of company X or company Y. But because of the interactions between the capacities of the technologies and the new insights that we have about how people can actually exploit those things to accomplish new things. You'll hear it and see it when you come to meetings like this. You'll, you'll see it at the fringes. People are asking questions and seeking answers in areas that are off the beaten path that are going to turn out to be very productive in the next 10 years.
1: Dave, how about you? Well, uh,
3: my big goal is to play off what we think we understand pretty well. So we understand how uh, people do the workarounds. You know, when they confront complexity, they cope with complexity. And what are the ways they adapt to make the system work? When they're short of resources, when there's gaps, when there's conflicts arise. And we've studied that in lots of different settings. Now we can do better and we can make it more actionable results or transferable results. But the place that's understudied and therefore we're, we're really not up to speed on what we need to be, Is how people seize opportunities, right? Not just work around gaps and conflicts, but rather to see advantage and how they, what they see as advantage locally from their perspective is very different than what outside views think will be advantageous to them, think will be valuable to them. So, how do people in various roles at various levels adapt to take, to seize opportunities? We know some of that arises from need, right? You're blocked and sometimes there's an interaction between that work around being a just a how to get around an obstacle, uh, very local, very immediate, almost a kludge, right? Versus something that turns into a innovation, right? And now all of a sudden I've, I've done something new and different. For example, I might have uh, coordinated and shared information, synchronized information horizontally through an organization that's designed for vertical information flow. And so how did they adapt and develop ad hoc and covert ways of communicating it so they could synchronize horizontally when the organization wasn't designed to recognize that need? Uh, so it's these, and I call these fluorescence, right? So we know a lot about adaptation to work around barriers and obstacles. We don't know so much about what triggers a fluorescence. And a fluorescence isn't one group in innovating. It's where one group's innovation or change triggers another group to innovate and change and adapt, which triggers another group to innovate and change and adapt. Uh, This is one of the reasons we look to some of the uh, rapidly changing worlds. Because in a rapidly changing world, you're seeing one of these quick accelerations of fluorescence as people see new opportunities. That doesn't mean that seizing new opportunities doesn't mean it doesn't have bad negative consequences for some roles. Or that there's new problems or vulnerabilities that have to be dealt with, new risks of failure that have to be dealt with. But you can see this process of rapid ad- uh, adaptation and adoption. Uh, and generally, what we see is new technology is part of that, but generally, the new technology is used in very, very different ways than what the advocates predicted or advocate or, or were pushing as oh, this will turn into this benefit for society or organizations. We find people using those advantages or even seeing what's advantageous in a very, very different way.
1: Great. Well, thank you to both of you for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: You can find Richard on Twitter at RI underscore Cook and David at DD Woods too. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.